Imagine That Studios presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 5 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Welly, what's this? I thought all these case files were written by Ministry field agents. Most of them are. May I? Ah, I see. Uh, There is a field agent support for this case, but the director felt that this transcript was actually the primary document. You see, we have a little list of... Oh, what's the word? You've got a little list, you've got a little list of society offenders who might well be underground and who never would be missed and who never would be missed. I thought you hated opera. Mikado isn't opera. Is it? Tabling that discussion for another time. I suppose you could call what these people were adjuncts or consultants. Not full-time staff. More likely because we haven't the funding to pay them a full salary. As many encounters as we have had with the House of Usher, we seldom capture its agents, let alone interrogate them. Usher. Oof. It's one thing dealing with their yobbos, killers, and various other bruises. But the further up the hierarchy we go, the more they give me the creeps. What was it you said once? They don't want to rule the world... They just want to watch it burn. Well, this is what our consulting alienist, Dr. Croyd, had been trying to do. And what you have there was his first opportunity to speak with a captured Usher associate shortly after you and I had left for the Americas. Hmm. I suppose one must welcome opportunities where one finds them. Inium Interum by Michael Spence Part 1. Raven Recording Cylinder 1, Case 18960317, UKKS Interview with detainee Alexander Knott, spelled K-N-O-T-T, operative of the House of Usher Interview conducted by Ian W. Croyd, DSC Initial attempt to obtain data concerning Usher mindsets. Let me see if I understand this. You're saying this is not an interrogation. That you want me to talk about myself, not Usher activities per se? Seriously? Exactly. They are not relevant, except insofar as they have made you the man you are. Tell me, if you will, your story. The story of Alexander Knott, of Usher. Hmm. I suppose it began the evening I watched my parents being murdered. Really? Do go on. All right. I was born Richard Baraclough, son of Ambrose and Lavinia Baraclough of Exmoor, in Devon. My father was a financier and local philanthropist, and I was expected to follow in his footsteps. This proved a challenging path to tread, however, since it became clear to me early on, as I watched my father at work, that he had a gift for working with numbers. I, just as clearly, did not. 
My passion was for the physical sciences, and had anyone asked me where I thought such a gift would be best applied, I would have said the church. You smile at that. Consider, I had before me the world, its varied parts fitted together with craftsmanlike precision. The heavens declare the glory of God. The invisible things of him are clearly seen from the creation of the world, being understood by the things that are made. I was in the hand of a loving, all-powerful creator, and this was the best world that could possibly be. Such was my devotion and enthusiasm for religion and theology that the parish priest was convinced I would be taking holy orders before too long. Alas, I was not a second son, let alone a third. My life was thoroughly plotted out before it had barely begun. My father, realizing that I was not of his caliber, nonetheless determined to teach me the skills necessary to command the world of money— and to his credit and satisfaction, I was making substantial progress by the time I had entered my teens, thanks to an unexpected strategy. Mechanisms, you see, fascinated me. The interactions of gears, of pulleys and belts, of plane surfaces separated only by roller bearings, became a kind of ballet, choreographed by Sir Isaac Newton, whom I revered as the thirteenth apostle of Jesus Christ. I saw in them a paradise, standing pure and radiant against the demonic hordes of the financial world. Imagine my astonishment when, in a moment of epiphany, this heaven and that hell came together as one. As I considered a problem concerning a gear array that maximized the number of gears interlocking and interacting, the sudden realization hit me that the restrictions placed on the gears with respect to sizes and the number of teeth could be expressed not only visually but as numbers and ratios. Like a tsunami, this new perspective swept through everything I knew about mechanics, and I began to perceive dimly at first, but then ever more clearly, that what I saw as a choreography of images and solids was also one of numbers, that not only gear ratios, but pressure differentials in pistons or hydraulic valves became vital matrices of numeric values. And if this kind of perceptive shift applied to my mechanical paradise, then the gates of hell tumbled. I started to investigate ways in which my world could illuminate my father's, and vice versa. My proudest moment came one afternoon when I ran the final tests on a calculation engine of my own devising. It began as essentially a steam-powered abacus, but when my math studies introduced me to the magic of logarithms, a device for adding and subtracting metamorphosed into something that surpassed not only my computational skills, but also, I was convinced, the most accomplished of my schoolmates. Without question, that experience had taught me techniques that would provide me with a more confident entry into my father's financial world. At least it would assist him with his own tasks, a prospect that thrilled me no end. That evening I waited by the front window, heart afloat and nose in a book, for my parents to return from the opera, a new adaptation of Dumas' The Count of Monte Cristo. So engrossed in my book was I that when twilight came I had not lit additional lamps. 
I only realized night was falling when I heard their footsteps a block away from the house. I watched from a dim parlor as they turned the corner and approached a street lamp. Beneath the gas lamp, a stranger confronted them. I could hear his rough voice saying, "'I'll take that necklace you're wearing, me lady.' My father grasped the handle of his cane and started to extract the sword hidden there, but the stranger smoothly kicked the cane out of my father's grip, caught the tip with one hand, whirled it once, and drove the heavy brass handle down onto my father's skull. My mother did not even have time to scream. As the stranger clubbed my father to death, his other hand emerged from a pocket, gripping a utensil of unknown shape. Indigo lightning erupted from its tip and surrounded my mother. The coruscating bolts ceased, and she dropped lifeless to the walk. The two bodies lay entangled, never to move again. She had not even had the chance to remove the necklace he had demanded. From a satchel, the stranger withdrew eight irregularly shaped objects and placed them at equal intervals around my parents' bodies. As the last one met the paving stones, a blue circle of light sprang into being. The inner edge flowed towards the centre like a glowing wave, and in the resulting pool of luminescence the bodies sank from view. The blue light flickered out, and the stranger retrieved the mysterious objects. I do not know what alerted the stranger to my witnessing presence, but his head jerked upwards, his eyes seeking mine. His lips tightened. He whirled on the now empty pavement and, my father's cane still in his grip, sprinted towards the house. I dropped my book and ran. No week was complete at our home without my father's favorite game. It had two forms. The first, played outdoors, was the traditional hide-and-seek, wherein my father was usually the seeker, while my mother and I, together at first, then separately as I grew older, found hiding places. Within the walls of our house, however, we played a variant we called Rush Home, home being a room my father had built near the centre of our house, to which we had to repair with all possible speed. Thither it was I now fled. Once closed and locked, the doors would remain invisible to the naked eye until I chose to open them. I could hear the mysterious assailant prowling through the various floors of the house, and a system of mirrors in the crown moulding allowed me glimpses of his systematic exploration. Three times he passed perilously close to the homeroom's hidden entrances, and I held my breath until his footsteps continued past. Finally they faded into distance, and from my darkened room I watched him leave the house, closing the door behind him to disappear into the night. Had I wished, I could have remained hidden for weeks in that well-provisioned refuge. This was not to be, though. The following night I carefully ventured out, keeping under cover, to hear the neighborhood murmuring about our family's disappearance. It seemed reasonable to assume that my parents' killer would continue looking for me. After some three hours' activity, I was back in the shelter, determined to wait as long as necessary for my traces to fade before taking further action. The following day, I awoke to hear a familiar voice calling my name. Mrs. Prudence Grimm, a widow we knew from church, stood in the foyer. "'Richard!' 
I know you're here. It's safe to come out. The people have other concerns now. Richard? I waited ten minutes before emerging from the shelter to find her seated in the parlor. Good morning, Mrs. Grimm. May I offer you some breakfast? Thank you, she said. Some tea would be nice. By all means, eat something if you haven't yet, but we should make haste. We would do well to be somewhere other than here. Over eggs and toast, she expressed her sympathy over the loss of my father and mother, but warned that the people who killed them, it did not escape me that she used the plural, were likely still looking for me. She knew of a place where I could stay, however, a sixth-form college specializing in the physical sciences. When I showed interest, she said that we would do well to leave quickly while the neighborhood was occupied with other matters. Other matters? I asked. Indeed, she said. I think they'll be sufficiently distracted not to notice our departure. It seems the church burned to the ground last night. Her carriage received us, and, after a journey of some twenty miles, pulled up in front of a Georgian-style mansion that rested quietly amidst a grove of oak and hickory. We mounted the steps to a front door bearing a modest brass plate with a single word, Corvus. She knocked, and the door opened to us. Past the door, the quiet met a violent end. Once through the foyer, I could only stand and try to take in the scope of my surroundings. An oak-panelled, high-ceilinged central hall was lined with what appeared to be office doors, with workers bustling in and out on errands at which I could hardly guess. All fascination had to yield, however, to a carved wood bas-relief above the door through which I had just passed. It bore the form of an enormous black bird with wings spread, carrying in its talons a banner bearing in raised letters the phrase, Iniem veni mitere in terram. I would have studied it further, but Mrs. Grimm pulled me along. Time enough for that. Let's get you settled. The flurry of movement in the hall accentuated the stillness of a well-dressed man of medium height standing at its end, his eyes fixed on us as we approached him. "'Good morning, sir,' said Mrs. Grimm. "'This is the young man I was telling you about.' "'Ah, very good, Mrs. Grimm. Thank you for bringing him.' She turned aside as if dismissed, and he turned to me. "'Welcome, young sir. Let us get to know one another.' He led me into an impressive office, with a desk that could have doubled as a banquet table. A wing-backed office chair sat behind the desk. In front were two vertical, leather-clad cylinders, each topped with a hemispherical dome of the same material. Taking his seat behind the desk, the man motioned me towards one of the cylinders, which turned out to contain a chair. I sat down. The seat was comfortable and the cylinder walls suggested a kind of privacy. "'You may call me Mr. Roderick,' he said in the same avuncular tone. "'Insofar as Corvus is a college, my duties are those of, shall we say, academic dean.' I started to say, "'My name is—' but Mr. Roderick cut me off. Smiling, he said, "'That is the first issue we must address. The young man you were about to name is in some peril.' His usefulness is at an end. He consulted a calendar, then withdrew a small notebook from the desk and turned pages until he found the one he wanted. 
Today we're at the letter K, and... He ran a finger down the page. Here we are. Not, with two T's. Just so. And for a Christian name? How about Alexander? He was rather accomplished with knots, as I recall. He looked up at me, but all I could do was nod, grateful that he hadn't chosen Ebenezer or Jehoshaphat. Excellent. Alexander it is, then. There we have it. Richard Barraclough is dead. Long live Alexander Knott. The next few hours were occupied with planning my studies. We take pains to ensure graduates of the finest quality. The initial ninety days are a time of observation and testing, followed by a final evaluative interview. Only one in eight makes it through this stage. Once you do, though, you will be part of an elite group. Now, we noted two items of interest. First, your analog computing device, with which I must say we are impressed. He paused and, sitting back in his chair, regarded me with a raised eyebrow. The other is the way the church in your community burned down. Eight incendiary devices, triggered by an impulse in the centre of the array, simultaneously ignited each outer wall. Most impressive indeed. What inspired you to take that approach? It was a good question. I considered. Removing the walls would show everyone that the building, like its claims, was empty. I had grown up thinking that God was not only all-powerful, but completely benevolent towards me. And then someone murdered my parents, putting paid to that notion. Whether I like it or not, there will always be someone with a more powerful weapon or a more ingenious plan who will wreck my world. My only hope of survival is to try to prepare for that eventuality. God will not intervene. Mr. Roderick nodded. Interesting. You would not, say, swear lifelong vengeance on evildoers everywhere? That seems a popular concept in adventure fiction. I snorted. Feasible for a penny dreadful, perhaps. I would suggest that those authors consider something closer to reality. Very good, he said. I believe you've made an excellent beginning. The fourth office on the right has your curriculum and textbooks, be ready to start at eight o'clock the morning after tomorrow. We shall meet again in ninety days. We stood, and he offered his hand. Welcome, Alexander Knott. The next few days will usher you into a new life. I look forward to news of your progress. The days passed swiftly. The powers that be proved surprisingly insightful in identifying my interests and skills. Classes dealt with chemistry, mechanics, even electricity and magnetism. On the side, there was even some remedial maths, and a surprising amount of physical activity, especially track and field events. Lest you conclude that all was work and no play, we had opportunities for contact with fellow students out of class. I became close to two students who, I found, had come to the college at much the same time as I had. Edmund was some years older, and Persephone less than a year older than I. To my surprise, the college admitted students of both sexes. In return for my help with chemistry and mechanics, Edmund tutored me in advanced principles of mathematics, 
I marveled at his grasp of the subject and envisioned him as a future member of the academic pantheon. Flamboyant though Mr. Roderick was when it came to choosing names, he hit the mark with Persephone Lake. Like the Greek goddess of old, she entered a room, and winter turned to spring. In the course of an evening's conversation, I asked how she came to be at the college, and she told me that a family friend had recommended it to her father. A childhood friendship had led to a marriage agreement that had lasted some years, but then suddenly, and with no notice whatsoever, her fiancé announced that their engagement was at an end. Crushed, she welcomed the change of environment and the distraction of new challenges. I was surprised, nay, astonished, that anyone granted the opportunity to take her as wife would walk away from it, and I said so. I had believed, she replied, that finally I'd found the exception, and it was he. Exception? You cannot depend on people, she said, or rather you dare not depend on them. The one thing you can count on in this world is betrayal. Maybe now, maybe later, but it will happen. The person upon whom you rely will turn on you. I did not press for details of her experiences, but merely noted that that sounded like the kind of life lesson that Mr. Roderick and I had discussed. I told her about mine, about the inevitable world-wrecker with the more powerful weapon or the better plan— I did not tell her that she had successfully upended my world without either of those tools. Nor did she hear my silent vow that I would be the exception she sought. Classes continued, and we noticed that class sizes would diminish by one or more students every week. There were no farewell celebrations. We would simply come to each session and find that someone we had seen the previous day was no longer present— we hoped they would find success at another school, or, failing that, in non-academic endeavors. In the meantime, remembering what Mr. Roderick had said about competitiveness at this present institution, we focused ever more closely on our studies and kept perfect attendance, resolved to be included in the one in eight that passed the overall course. Ninety days, thirteen weeks, three months— you try to take them one at a time, but inevitably you reach the last one, wondering where the time went and whether success on your final evaluation would be because of how you spent the time or in spite of it. Friday arrived, the day when the week's interviews would be conducted. I returned to the main hall to find it deserted. Instead of the hubbub I had witnessed the first day, and on many other occasions, the place was quiet to the point of making me wonder who had absconded with everyone else on the planet while I stood there alone. At the end of the hall, Mr. Roderick's closed door dared me to open it. I made my way across the hall's length and raised my hand to knock, but the door swung open, leaving my fist poised in midair. Behind his desk, Mr. Roderick smiled and beckoned to me. "'Come in, Mr. Knott,' came his booming voice. I took a deep breath and entered. The two chairs faced his desk as before, but as I took the seat he indicated, I saw that the other one was also occupied. Had Edmund not finished his evaluation? Were we to be evaluated together? And if so, why? 
My stomach quivered at the thought that my assisting him on assignments, or his assisting me, might be grounds for disqualification. Edmund was clearly nervous. Perhaps he knew, or perhaps he had no idea, and, like me, yet awaited an outcome. Mr. Roderick sat back in his chair. "'During these past three months, you and Mr. Jasper have done well.' Your sessions have included a process of elimination, as you have doubtless observed, and you are among those who remain. I congratulate you. You are now entitled to know more about this organization of which you are a part. Perhaps you have suspected that Corvus is more than a sixth-form college. I nodded. Edmund, at almost seventeen, was older than the average student. It is, in fact, a regional training center for an organization known as the House of Usher. Its purpose? To change the world. As a member of the House, you will be called upon to take actions with consequences for the Empire, even for those parts of the world where the Crown does not hold sway. Our one non-negotiable requirement is that orders receive absolute obedience, without hesitation or reservation. Do you understand? I nodded. The statement was clear, although how it might be applied was as unknown as the future. Excellent. For example, at the edge of my desk facing you is a panel containing two switches. Push the right-hand switch forward, now. The panel had appeared before me without my noticing. Very well, without hesitation or reservation. I threw the switch. A translucent screen sprang like a pocket door to seal the opening of Edmund Jasper's cylinder, rendering his form indistinct. The lights dimmed, and a buzz like ten thousand enraged hornets filled the room as a bolt of lightning washed the enclosure behind the screen in white, followed by more bolts in rapid succession. Edmund did not scream or even shout but I could see his form stiffen and quake from the amperage passing through him. The machinery fell silent. Nothing moved within the cylinder, but the air around it held a momentary, unpleasant smell. A hissing sounded as of a piston cycling, and the cylinder's shadowy contents glided downward. The hissing stopped, then resumed, and when it halted again, the screen slid back into the side of the cylinder to reveal the chair, now empty. Now, throw the other switch. I did. Nothing happened. He sat back and said, with the favorite uncle's smile that had never left his face, Now, ask your questions. An inner voice suggested that showing my horror at what I had just done would not be counted in my favor. I strove to keep my expression calm and my voice level. Mr. Jasper was a genius at mathematics, and I can testify to his skill as a teacher. He could have been a tremendous asset to your training programs and operations alike. And yet, after investing three months in educating him, you commanded me to kill him. Is this not a waste of a rare talent? Mr. Roderick raised an eyebrow and smiled in approval. A good question. As you can imagine, not everyone who joins the House of Usher undergoes the kind of training you received, only those in whom we see the potential for leadership. To be a leader, however, one must be able to follow. 
Mr. Jasper's performance in class sessions suggested that he lacked this ability, and our talk this past hour, illustrated by his conduct on the test you yourself just underwent, confirmed that suggestion. Despite his admittedly considerable talents, he was of no use to us. He leaned forward, resting his elbows on the desk. One of the subjects I believe you addressed for your independent project was Ethergate technology. I assume you dealt with the 1872 event codenamed Mercury's Gate? I nodded. Sir Carol Ludovic was himself a genius such as you describe, and his success in producing point-to-point -point transport inspired us to redouble our efforts to obtain his research when, after his death, it was seized by the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences. He chuckled and added, "'Whose agent's education must not be quite up to snuff. Given the Greek source of that technology, I should have expected them to invoke Hermes rather than Mercury.' "'Atlantean theology, sir,' I said, and immediately wished I hadn't. He glanced at me sharply. Continue. I took a breath. Hesitancy was not a virtue here. Plato was Athenian, but the technology he described was a product of Atlantis. That culture, with its emphasis on commerce, revered Mercury for millennia before the Romans picked up the name. Hermes was concerned more with communication. And, as Plato stated, the struggle between Atlantis and Athens began with their gods. Oh. He was silent for a heartbeat, as if lifting his train of thought back onto the rails. Well, my point is that, despite his mathematical ability, Ludovic's personality, or shall we say his ego, was such that only his work had any benefit for the House of Usher. He himself would have been useless. Had he joined us, we would without doubt have been forced to dispose of him in short order. Do you understand? I do while going directly from Ludovic to Edmund seemed like a leap to me. I knew well the once-bitten, twice-shy principle. Very good. So you see that we must demand obedience not just of our foot-soldiers, but of our captains as well, indeed, of our generals, when they determine that necessity places demands upon them. One more question, I said. Witnessing Mr. Jasper's demise called to mind memories from before I came here. I must ask, did the House of Usher kill my parents? Mr. Roderick withdrew a file from a drawer and made a show of consulting it. No, we did not. After replacing the file, he added, I dare say that had we reason to execute your parents, we would have done a complete job. You would not have been allowed to escape. I nodded. For the first time since we met, I glimpsed iron behind the joviality. Fair enough. He sat back again. Tell me about the emblem in the main hall, over the front entrance. It had never been mentioned in classes. Was this a test for curiosity? Initiative? The blackbird is a raven, a predator. Its posture suggests that it is about to seize its prey. The Latin mottoes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 49, I am come to send fire on the earth. Not knowing the history of this place, I had hoped to discover its application during my time here. Well done. You are correct on both elements. 
The Nazarene's words suit our own intent well, as do his further statements about producing a society that is not peaceful but divided. This is our founding philosophy, that things are happening today which, though they be designed to improve the lot of mankind, will not. And it is necessary that the world be shown the folly of those who claim that their goals are benign. Some of us believe strongly that other goals must be pursued. Others believe just as strongly that no worthwhile goal exists, that all human efforts, however well-intentioned, must end in futility. I myself follow that school of thought. Both tenets, however, call for the same solution, fire upon the earth. If at times the fire be literal, we will not shrink from using it. You yourself have found it appropriate, the tool for the task, eh? We spent the rest of the hour reviewing my coursework and related subjects. The moment came when he looked up at me and said, That concludes our interview. Our next prospect will be here in a moment. At that, I realized with a shiver that I had no idea how I had fared in the evaluation, and whether I would survive the next few minutes. And I must ask you to be silent from this point forward. His eyes held mine with meaning unmistakable, belying his smile. Should you consider any outbursts, be aware that I have my own set of switches at hand. I looked down at my chair. Clearly the metal fittings had a purpose beyond the ornamental. I looked back at him and nodded once. Very good. Do come in, Miss Lake, he called out, indicating the other chair. From behind the other cylinder appeared Persephone, who hesitantly seated herself within. Mr. Roderick gave her the same opening speech he had given me, and shortly she faced the panel with the switches. I continued to keep my expression calm, all the while dreading the next few seconds. She threw the first switch, and the lights flickered. I could not help flinching. From somewhere outside the room I heard a muffled but substantial boom, as if from an explosion elsewhere on the campus. Persephone regarded the switch with, it seemed, a look of satisfaction. Now, throw the other switch. My muscles tensed again, feeling the deadly jolt of electricity to come, but it came in my imagination only. I took a relieved breath and found that Persephone's second switch unlike mine, had produced a result. A slight but discernible scent, something floral, had been released into the air. Mr. Roderick nodded, his smile unchanged. Very good, Miss Lake. Mr. Knott, this concludes your evaluation. Henceforth your lodgings will be in the southwest wing, and you will receive your assignments from Mr. Bedlow. Do not discuss what we have said and done here with any of the other prospects. In fact, I think it better that you have no further contact with them at all. He stood and extended his hand. Welcome to the House of Usher. We shook hands and I left, mulling over two thoughts. The first, as if I needed any more horror this day, was the realization that the students who had left our classes would never find success anywhere. I, furthermore, was now part of that process, for I could not deny my own responsibility in throwing the lethal switch. The second thought was the mirror image of the first. For a moment, I wielded the more powerful weapon. I, Alexander Knott, was the world wrecker. 
That moment was brief, but now that I was of the house of Usher, it could come again, and again, and again. Very well, so be it. End of Cylinder Recording resumes on Cylinder 5. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, visit ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com to order Operation Endgame and the Curse of the Silver Pharaoh. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. An Imagine That Studios production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Valentine. Thank Thank you you for for listening. listening.